What's up, y'all? This is Chitty Bang, and I'm on the Renegade Millionaire Show, the podcast that profiles entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs. Join us as we go one-on-one inside the hearts and minds of some of our generation's best and brightest. And now, introducing your host, my friend, Sun Group Wealth Partners Managing Director, CNBC and Forbes.com contributor, Winnie Sun. Welcome to the Renegade Millionaire Show. This is our live broadcast here from the TuneIn.com studio in Venice Beach, sunny Southern California. Again, I'm Winnie Sun, your host. I'm the founder and managing partner of Sun Group Wealth Partners, a financial planning firm here based in SoCal. One of my goals for this show is to share stories of individuals, people who have built career lives of passion and purpose. I'm really excited to give you the opportunity to hear these financial legends tell their stories, how they did it, and how they keep it. All of them are insightful and dynamic players in American culture today. Think of these interviews as your private ticket to spend the next hour with a virtual mentor. And I think that we learn best when we learn through storytelling, which is the best tool in learning. Our listeners, who are interested in creating their own legacies, will learn from some of the best. As an advisor uh, working with business owners, nothing excites me more than working and speaking to people like Carter. Um, Now, Carter, maybe you could give us a quick hello to our listeners. Hello, how are you guys doing? So just so you know, Carter, uh, since you can't see us on radio, and I I do encourage you to Google him, is not only handsome but talented. (laughs) So he's come in the radio station today in his, let's see, very cool tennis shoes, right? (laughs) Skinny jeans, plaid shirt, and as handsome as always. So Carter, let me ask you this. So Carter Ream uh, started V Vodka at the very old age of 25 years old. (laughs) So when most people were just hanging out surfing on the coast, you and your brother decide to launch a full force spirits company? Yep. I read a little bit about your bio, and I thought it was so fascinating. So basically, you and your friends were drinking, and you thought, wow, this is kind of boring. Am I right? Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, my brother and I, our background was uh, we were both investment bankers at Goldman Sachs in New York. And uh, when you're doing that, you're kind of working 80 hours a week, trying to go out 30 hours a week, and then figure out what the, what's remaining for sleep. Uh, and we were just kind of sick of going out as con- consumers and having another Grey Goose, Red Bull, or something like that. And uh, when we looked around the spirits industry, we just saw a lack of innovation. And uh, anytime you find an industry with a lack of innovation, it means there's kind of an opportunity to to do something different. So Exactly. So 25 years old, working 80 hours at Goldman Sachs, that's actually a career I think most people would dream of doing. But instead, you say, well, you know, that's not all I want to do. I think I want to start a spirits company. So a lot of people think when they're drinking like Grey Goose or whatnot that this is cool and obviously these guys do tons of business, tons of marketing, but not everybody at 20-some years old says, hey, let's start a vodka company. So what made you think that you could do it? Yeah, I always tell people the main thing is we were just kind of just young enough and just stupid enough to think leaving our cushy jobs at Goldman Sachs was a good idea. But uh, I kind of say that jokingly, but I also say that serious, right, is that um, to me, right, to be an entrepreneur, to think it's actually a good idea to leave kind of the comfortableness of the job that you currently have 
right? You have to be kind of reckless and kind of be stupid, but in a good way, right? Because uh, as your career progresses, you have a wife, you have kids, you're making more money, your opportunity costs and the risk profile of leaving kind of becomes uh, becomes more difficult. So, I mean, for us, uh, it was kind of being young and just kind of going, shoot, we might as well try because if we don't try, we'll never know if we could be an entrepreneur. Uh, and the other thing was my brother specifically worked in consumer products uh, at Goldman. So he was lucky enough to work on the IPO for Under Armour. So if you know Kevin Plank's story, uh, the first time they went to go meet with him about his IPO, he was 32 years old. And, you know, now fast forward nine years later, there are all these young entrepreneurs that are running companies, Travis from Uber, and the list goes on and on. Um, but back then to have a 32-year-old guy who was a former football player at Maryland, um, who was about to take his company public was was quite inspirational. And so my brother got to know him quite well. And again, Kevin's story is he was a football player in Maryland. He was sweating through his jersey. He said, there must be something better than this because I'm sweating through my undershirt. Um, and most of us would have stopped there or, you know, said to your friend at a bar, you know, I wonder if somebody should invent a better undershirt. And then it's kind of order your cocktail and you, and you never go back to that. Uh, and, and the only thing that separated Kevin from a million people who have a million ideas is he actually figured out how to do it, right? So Kevin didn't know anything about a moisture-wicking T-shirt that people would end up wearing that would be kind of their signature product, but he kind of figured it out and, uh, and kind of went on that road, and uh, I think that's kind of what inspired us. Amazing, amazing. So tell me, um, so the two of you go home to your parents and say, Mom and Dad, we're going to leave Goldman Sachs. So what was their reaction? Well, we always joke. Uh, my, my dad used to tell people, oh, I have two sons. They work at Goldman Sachs. Uh, and then fast forward six months later when we both left, then he'd just tell people he had two sons. <laughs> um, and then thankfully the brand you know, has turned out to be successful. We've got a lot of press, so now I think he's cool and talks about his two sons who own this liquor company. But uh, I think it is quite a change, right? And especially when you think about somebody like my parents. Um, again, the, the, the tides have shifted so much the last five years in terms of entrepreneurs and tech companies and things like that. But again, you think about six years ago, you have kind of more traditional parents. They said, hold on a second, you're going to leave Goldman Sachs to go start a liquor company out of your house in California. Yep, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> a lot of long pauses, a lot of kind of staring at each other, trying to figure out what's going on here. So, Jack Carter, you graduated from Columbia. We sent you through one of the top schools in the country, and you're going to create a vodka company. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, great. So tell me a little bit about Vive. I mean, where did you come up with the name? I'm sure people ask that all the time. Yeah, so the, the name is a play on the word for life in a lot of Romance languages. So V-I-V-R-E in French, pronounced V, Vita, Viva. I mean, the whole idea behind Vive was our, our initial kind of notion was the liquor industry is incredibly boring. We're tired of an eight times, you know, distilled vodka from Eastern Europe. Let's create this idea of a better way to drink because our hypothesis was, uh, as I sit here and drink my coconut water, was the whole world was kind of going better, right? And so healthier, um, healthier better. People are just being more conscious. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward today, uh, obviously that has kind of come to fruition in terms of the first time I walked into Walmart about a year and a half ago, I took a photo of the cold box and the snack section of Starbucks, and I looked up the stat that 35 million people walk into a Starbucks every week, and there's nothing in Starbucks that's what I call Nicole, the old Twinkie way, right? There's no crappy snacks. It's dehydrated fruit and berries that have been preserved to keep all the nutrients and fresh juice and things like that. Um, and our whole thing was if people are going to do that in all these other aspects of life, even down to what they wear, right? They're wearing Tom's shoes or they're 
toting around one of Lauren Bush's feed bags, it's tough to believe they're not going to demand that from all their categories, right? And so um, we just thought, hey, let's create this idea of a better way to drink, um, and let's do that in liquor. And then we left our jobs, and then we're like, whoa, what does a better way to drink mean? That just sounds like fancy <laughs> marketing talk. So we kind of had to figure out kind of uh, what that entailed for us. And for us, it was kind of creating products around better ingredients. At the end of the day, all people care about is better cocktails uh, and then being a better type of company around sustainability and giving back and things like that. So you left Goldman Sachs, you and your brother. Did you leave uh, prior to you starting your company? Meaning that did you leave or did you already start the company and then leave? Yeah, we, uh, we actually went back and forth. I had accepted a job to go work for a big private equity firm here in Los Angeles. And uh, my brother and I went back and forth of whether I should go work there for a few months while we developed the idea and then kind of did it. Um, and in the end, we decided, or I really decided that I didn't think I could do that because, again, like I always tell people, there's never a good time to go be an entrepreneur. Leaving your job is never a good idea when mm -hmm. you're going to go work out of your house and pay yourself nothing. So uh, to me, you really just have to jump out both feet. Um, and so for us, it was let's just get out the door and wake up on a Tuesday with no jobs and start kind of thinking about what we are going to do. So, so did um, you have a did. safety net? Did you already have some savings put aside? Yeah, uh, luckily Goldman, I think, overpaid me when I was that age. So we had some savings put aside. And, and again, our, our whole thing was, um, you know, people are so scared of failure or risk, but um, we looked at it at that time and I, and I said to myself, hey, we go out and we try this for a few years, even if we're not successful. Uh, quite honestly, I'd probably get into Harvard Business School easier than if I had, uh, you know, gone and done what I was going to do. So, um, and in the same way, right, if you leave your job and you're 35 years old and go do something startup or entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. you probably are a more attractive candidate when you want to re-enter the workforce if it doesn't work out, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Failure is not always a negative because you've got this great experience that's probably going to help you in your next adventure. It's amazing. And you do this with your brother. I mean, yep. that's pretty magical. Yeah, exactly. We even had my little sister work with us at one point. Very so. cool. Yeah, it's kind of a, a family cool. affair. Well, maybe you could educate us. I mean, this is fascinating. I think there's so many people out there that want to start their own businesses, have these ideas, but they never get to where you and your mother have gotten Vive too. I mean, you're definitely in that very, very small percentage. But I'm sure a lot of it stemmed from you know, being young, um, having this tremendous educational background and working um, at one of the top investment firms in the country and being exposed to these types of companies that you said, for example, like Under Armour. That, so you didn't think that, well, I think failure really wasn't an option. It wasn't something that you were concerned about, right? So talk to us a little bit about, um, maybe you could share with us a little bit about your parents' background. Did they also, were they also business owners? Uh, yep, my mom is the CEO of the household. Uh, <laughs> she uh, she takes that role very seriously, as she always tells us. Uh, she went to business school and, and then uh, and then ended up raising us. And uh, my my dad runs a, a company in Chicago and uh, is the board of a bunch of companies in the U.S. So he's always been fantastic to kind of let us do whatever we want. Never encourage us to do anything that he wanted, but what what we wanted. But uh, it's always great to have someone like that who can be a mentor and kind of uh, help us along the way. Uh, if we do get a little out of line, just kind of steer us back on the right direction. So That's amazing. Yeah, so now Vive is now the, the best-selling independent uh, liquor brand in the U.S. Yep. And uh, you are listed by Inc. Magazine as the 250 fastest-growing companies and brands in the U.S. And we also know that Vive gives quite a bit to charity. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit because, you know, my clients <coughs> get 
tapped all the time. We get phone calls, emails, like, and they're always being asked to give back. So as a business owner, a successful business owner, how do you decide how to give, who to give to? Yeah, so I mean, for us, similar to, you know, Blake, our good friend from Tom's and Warby Parker and Lauren Bush and a bunch of these brands, kind of have decided, right, that the the best way to give back is kind of make it part of the sustainable business model. So um, we very much look at ourselves like a Warby Parker or somebody like that. If you know the story of Warby, they initially came out kind of this one-for-one model, but Mm -hmm. in eyewear following Tom's. Um, And now, honestly, people just know them as this kick-ass company, excuse my language, that makes really cool glasses. And by the way, they just gave their millionth pair of glasses back to to charity and those in need. Um, in, In the same way, I think there was a time five years ago where people thought, Oh, I'm an organic uh, house cleaner. I'm an organic um, this, or I'm an organic vodka, and try to sell being sustainable and giving back as kind of the cake. Mm-hmm. I think, unfortunately or unfortunately, what people have realized is, right, that is not the cake. It's kind of the icing on the cake, right? So the right. best thing all of us can do is create a wildly successful product that weaves it into our DNA, sustainability, giving back, things like that. And that's how we make a difference, right? So Tom's obviously is the is the best example of that. But um, because of the success of Tom's, they've given away millions and millions of shoes, shoes right. more so than they ever would have given back if it was just Oh, we really want to give back, right? right? But by you making can never write a check big enough, but actually make a difference by giving something. Yeah, wrong. exactly. So that's how. I mean, how did you pick for the planet then? So yeah, so we basically um, got to know the the founder of Patagonia, who created this concept of one percent for the planet. Uh, you see it on the Desani and Fiji bottles, but it's basically kind of an environmental tax for all of us doing kind of business on this earth because the whole idea is we want to leave the planet the same way we found it. And so there's a little less than 1,500 companies, Patagonia obviously being the biggest, and and the whole thing is we basically pledge to give 1% of our top-line sales back to some type of environmental causes. Um, And so, right, there's no funny business. There's no portion of the proceeds. um, And so we've given, you know, upwards of half a million dollars and That's we've incredible. done back to some water charities and some uh, rainforest preservation charities because we obviously like tying it back to our product and those people, right, the acai farmers that are involved with our product and things like that. So it's been wonderful. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd love if you could kind of break down the vodka for us. So talk, if you could share with us a little bit about your travels to Brazil and how it all came to be because from someone like myself who enjoys your product, we don't know a lot about how it came yeah. and filled that cup. Absolutely. So, so again, when we left our jobs, it was, let's create this idea of a better way to drink. Then we kind of sat there and we're like, oh, shoot, what is a better <laughs> way to drink, right? That just sounded like a lot of fancy marketing talk. And so we started saying, hey, again, this is better ingredients and a better type of company. And so we started to think about what are these better ingredients or what are we going to do to make the industry uh, better? And so we actually did our research. Obviously, I always say we're all biased by our experiences. And Somehow bias has gotten a negative connotation, but bias is not necessarily negative, right? It's just based on your experiences, where you've been, what you've seen. And so we started thinking about what are some better ingredients we can put into something like a vodka. And so we had been surfing in Brazil in 2003, kind of one of those funny stories you have only in college where uh, I was out at the, uh, the Heights, the bar at Columbia, uh, on a Thursday night right before reading week of exams, my junior year. And uh, my buddy Jerry DeRose said, oh, my mom's a flight attendant. We should really take advantage of it and, like, go do a fun trip sometime. I'm like, that's crazy. What about Rio tomorrow? We all like to surf. He's like, 
Let's do it. Well, yeah, let's do it. I'm pretty sure we were a few sheets to the wind when we decided we were going to go to Rio the next day. But sure enough, the next day we went to the airport, flew standby. I decided we would kind of study for exams while we were in uh, in Rio and went down there and spent uh, the three or four days that were, that were kind of technically reading week, surfing, eating acai, and just kind of having a grand old time. And so fast forward a few years later, when we decided to start Vive, we were kind of thinking about what's the ingredient that we think that would kind of fit. Thought back to that experience in Brazil. We said, oh, you know, no one knows acai in the United States. It's very popular in Brazil. It's kind of the national fruit there. Oh, interesting. Um, it was so new at that time. Yeah, exactly. So when we decided to make it our core ingredient, there are only 15 products across all industries in the U.S. with the, with the berry. Wow. So um, obviously Sam Bazan, the, the purple juice you see right. in the grocery store, they were the true pioneers of bringing it to the United States. Um, but, but nobody knew it. What we saw in it was incredibly healthy, Oprah. I, the Oprah Midas' touch, she had just started talking about acai. Um, and then when we thought about Brazil, everything Brazilian just kind of imports well. It has that kind of sexy, sexy kind of yeah. sophisticated, kind of exotic kind of connotation to it. So mm-hmm. um, we basically just decided we're going to create a, a vodka. We're going to put in acai and then a few other ingredients like a Brazilian cherry, acerola, and a prickly pear with this whole idea of, again, it was less about an acai vodka and more about finding that person who wants to do everything better. And by the way, here's just some better tasting Vodka that has better ingredients. Am I, am I right that the vodka is made here in the U.S.? Uh, yep, exactly. So uh, so we get the acai from a, a farming project that we uh, have with Sambazan. Um, it's called the Sustainable Acai Project. And um, we get the acai from there, bring it to Idaho. Uh, we chose a distillery in Idaho because it's the only distillery in the U.S. to run on a portion of wind power. Oh, um, wow. So that's pretty cool. And uh, they actually get everything else locally um, around the distillery. So water from the Snake River, um, local Idaho winter wheat, and then and then infuse it with the acai. That's incredible. So all here in the U.S. and also natural and and, and doing things a lot smarter. Yep. So it's sustainable. Trying to, yeah. Very cool. So could you educate us a little bit about this? I read, so 60, 70 proof. What does this mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, basically, this 60, 70 proof is just a, a function of um, how much alcohol is in the in the bottle. So if you know anything uh, most people don't about how vodka or any of these other spirits are made, basically um, it's fermented. It's taken up to about 180 proof. So something that your car could practically run on. And then they basically add water, cut it with water to get it to go down to whatever proof you want it to be. So, um, you know, a traditional vodka, 70 to 80 proof. Uh, Vive is 70 proof. Um, at one point, everyone thought maybe vodkas needed more proof. Um, so Stoli and some other brands came out with vodkas that were 90 proof. What they found was they, they tasted a little too much like rubbing alcohol. <laughs> so uh, so now most vodkas are 60 or 70 to 80 proof. Uh, other spirits, whiskeys can be 80 to 90, but just a function of kind of the alcohol content in the bottle. That's incredible. So, you know, uh, one of the luxuries of doing what I do is I get invited to a lot of very special events. Um, and, you know, I, I do know this is certainly a celebrity favorite. I went to... I think Matt Leinart's event just recently, oh, yeah. and it was all over the showcase. Everybody was drinking beef and Vitafruit. Right? Yep. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit because that was a big thing. Everybody was humming. It was organic. Yep. Right? Yeah, so exactly. So, you know, obviously we create this platform around a better way to drink. We have one product. Uh, if you've ever looked at the P&L of a spirits company, you realize you have to have multiple products, right, if you mm-hmm. think about it. 
I have 15 salespeople around the country. I need them to walk in and sell more than one product. Just kind of makes sense financially. And so we said, well, where else in the industry can we kind of take this idea of a better way to drink? So we started looking around. And if you've ever been to the, the what they call the ready to drink section, it's kind of like the last Twinkie section, uh, as I called <laughs> in the uh, in the alcohol category. So, you know, it's that big jug of green glow in the dark Jose Cuervo margarita. Things like that. So if you've ever made a margarita at home, you actually know it's actually not bright green. It doesn't glow in the dark. It doesn't have yellow number five, things like that. Um, And we actually saw the opportunity to kind of capitalize and improve upon the success of a brand called Skinny Girls. So um, Mm. the one thing that we found and learned on Vive was when you're kind of the first one doing something, it just takes more time, more capital, more muscle to kind of re-educate, change behaviors, things like that. Anytime you can take something that's already out there and improve upon it, it's uh, much easier most of the time um, to kind of draft off the number one. And so we saw the success of this brand, Skinny Girl, brought out by the housewife, uh, Bethany Frankel. Mm -hmm. And we said, this is crazy. This brand was on the cover of Forbes. It Mm -hmm. got sold for $100 million. Yet it's the most counter-trend brand out there right now. It has... Mm -hmm. uh, yellow number five it doesn't have all natural ingredients it got kicked out of whole foods you mm-hmm. name it it's kind of seems like it's a twinkie in the middle of kind of the Absolutely. the starbucks kind of cold box so we basically came out with a ready to drink line that has kind of uh, all natural and organic ingredients mm-hmm. um so it has a organic margarita uh, organic cosmo uh, organic lemonade and our newest flavor is uh, organic coconut water uh, colada so if you know anything about a Pina colada, don't want to ruin your next vacation, but it has about 500 calories per cocktail. So <laughs> oh, uh, so we added coconut water to that, made it under 125 calories. How and, did you do that? Uh, really, you know, believe it or not, that line is all about using better ingredients. And it, and all the, all the um, products end up being under 125 calories per cocktail. But we decided to do it by just using better ingredients rather than using substitutes like stevia and things like that so it's just quality yeah so it's all about quality right so like the the coconut water colada it has real coconut water real agave nectar real lime juice so simple and and clean exactly and so uh and because it has that usda certified organic logo on it and and approval it means we kind of can't play any funny games with different things like that so yeah so Mm -hmm. it's been fantastic so that product's everywhere from walmart to cvs to kind of all the big grocery stores around the country that's incredible so you can drink and not feel guilty yeah exactly about what you're putting into your system (laughs) and you're saving the world basically yeah yeah amazing and that's great because you know i have children and I would hope that more businesses and companies go in this direction because we can do better because we know better, right? So let me ask you, what's the next chapter for Aviv and for you and your brother? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, the the next chapter for Aviv is we just kind of, again, we know we have a product that resonates, um, like any kind of small but growing brand is just trying to figure out how do we, the United States is a very large place with a lot of markets. Um, and so how do we continue just to kind of get our story out there? How do we get more exposure? Again, it's kind of uh, old school distribution model. How do we get into more grocery stores, more Walmarts, more CPKs, Virgin Americas, kind of you name it. Um, and then also I think, right, our, our whole thing is we want to go category by category and figure out how do we kind of put our spin of a better way to drink on, on different categories. So. Um, so that's kind of what's what's exciting about it is that you realize a brand like ours just has so much runway of stuff we can continue to kind of make an impact 
uh, through the industry. It seems like it's just something you need to continue to talk about and tell stories on because if you, like like myself as a consumer, if I knew that there was an organic, healthier choice, then obviously to me, that's the obvious decision to make, yep. right? But it's just telling that story one person at a time, right? Which, which hopefully, hang out with me a little bit and we can do that together. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I always tell people too, I mean, what's great is all this technology. It brings brands and consumers t- and kind of discovery together, right? So uh, in the old days, right, of, right, I wouldn't be able to afford the billboards or the print or things like that. There is kind of this kind of democratization of kind of good brands and good ideas and they tend to be discovered. Uh, Facebook's making it harder and harder these days with how they have companies pay for advertising. But but in general, what that's ex- that's what's exciting is we come B2C. on here and kind of reach a lot of people, and there's so many different means to kind of tell our story. So I mean, I, I always tell people, I think what's so exciting about being an entrepreneur these days is that um, there is this total democratization of ideas, and, and uh, you know, w- whether you're myself or you or the bartender sitting across from me, you know, tonight when I'm drinking somewhere – is anyone with a good idea has a real shot uh, at getting it to come to fruition these days. And so I think it's just such an exciting time because, again, even when we left six or seven years ago, it was really difficult to figure out where we're going to buy glass and where are we going to find a distillery and things like this. And, you know, there were four distilleries at the time. Now there's 1,400 micro distilleries in the U.S. or, um, you know, Alibaba's of the world didn't exist. And so what I think is for everyone kind of listening or everyone I talk to is, it is just such a great time to go out there. You have an idea? Hey, might as well give it a dice, right? Because you can get it on Quirky or Kickstarter or go on Shark Tank or things like that. And so it really is just a, a fun time. And on the flip side, right, it makes it pretty scary because the pace of innovation and the pace of competition for it's somebody so is so fast, right? So uh, I went to a conference the other day for the 100 Most Innovative Entrepreneurs chosen by Goldman Sachs. And um, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, was sitting there and you know, very casual, 100 people in the room. And I was thinking to myself, there's somebody in this room that's gunning for Reed Hastings, right? Somebody is probably launching a, it has a technology company in this room that although Netflix feels like this invincible, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their market cap's only around $20 billion. There could be someone in three years that could be the net, next kind of Netflix. And so, again, it's the good and the bad. If you're sitting atop a perch somewhere, you're, you're not as safe as you were when you were a Chrysler back 40 years ago and you weren't going to get knocked off. Uh, as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of the sky's the limit in terms of what you can do. So. so on that note, Carter, I'm just curious now. So you're 25 years old, and there's like four microbrewers you talked about, right? So what did you do? Did you just call them up and say, I want to meet you? Yeah, yeah, so it was difficult. So I said, you know, I always tell people the one of the great things is, and now now so more, kind of more so, but back then when I used to kind of give some interviews when we were first launching was the great thing about the invention of Google and the Internet was if you knew the right questions to ask, you could get the right answers, right? And that was a big shift from even five years prior before we had this stuff. So, you know, we would type into Google, America's best distilleries, and we try to find an article or a listing, things like that. And then, believe it or not, we just start calling each one, and we literally have to persuade them to kind of take on our product. I think of the four, um, two didn't call us back. One said no, and we were able to persuade one to uh, to, to distill our product. So Amazing. So is this your own formula? Like you and your brother came up with this recipe yourself? Yeah, people are always a little disappointed that we didn't kind of bootleg it in our garage. So for us, it was a, a little more of we kind of came up with the thematics and maybe – 
kind of the the fashion analogy is we were creative directors, but we didn't actually sew the dresses, right? So mm-hmm. we talked about the vision, what the ingredients we were, and then we worked with kind of a distiller who kind of understood how to kind of put the flavor combinations and the ingredient combinations uh, together. That's amazing. That's amazing. I love it. So let me ask you this. Now that you're marking the product, um, how do you, like if someone's just starting off and you were mentoring them, what would you tell them? What would be the first step that you see as an entrepreneur should do in terms of knowing how to market their product? Yeah, so I always tell people, I think one of the things is you want to go from zero to 100 or you want to reach a million people or whatever it is. Um, but the, I think the biggest mistake a lot of people make is they try to go and get that those million people and market to those million people kind of day one. Um, and I think, again, Blake at Tom's did it better than anyone, which realized that kind of it starts with, again, for us, it's always 50 people, 50 bartenders, and these little pockets that then kind of start to snowball and become a bigger deal. And so, um, and there's a lot of technology around figuring out who your super fans are, right? And so, again, to me, it's all about launch a product, figure out who's, who, who it's resonating with, and spend more time nurturing them and, and spend more time figuring out hey, I have 50 people that keep buying my product. How do I get those 50 people? How do I give them a tool or a motivation or incentive to go tell another 50 people, right? And that's how it can quickly kind of spiderweb in a positive way um, versus too often people go, you know, again, this is the kind of a, a fake example, but, oh, I want to go do a Super Bowl commercial, right? And that's not always the best way. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a lot of people, but, again, slow, steady, building up these this kind of evangelism is, is important. And unfortunately, when it comes to brand building, uh, there are very few shortcuts, right? So it Absolutely. takes time. It takes time. It takes patience. People hearing your story. Mm-hmm. I mean, people will come up to us and go, I was at the basketball game yesterday, and someone goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've read, I know I've read about your guys' story. I know, I know kind of type of thing. And so, mm-hmm. again, it takes time and time, and people hear about the product, and they always say, right, the rules of three, it takes about three times for someone to kind of really kind of grasp it or kind of becomes in their kind of conscious. So, right, if you heard about Vive the first time, you might brush by it. You start to hear about it three or four times. It's like, oh, yeah, that product, I should go and maybe buy it or I should go and do something with it. So That's true. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with our industry, too. And I I know you have background in it in that, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, how do I do what you do? How do I get on television on CNBC and, and write for Forbes and all this stuff? And I always say, well, it's not about that. It's all about the client. Right. If you like you said, if you start with just 50 clients and you take such good care of them and you realize that what you accomplish what they need and they become raving fans of yours, then it'll just naturally organically grow. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So it's all about quality versus quantity. Yeah. So on that note, uh, thank you so much for being here. So I really want to thank my guest, Carter, for being for spending time with us, being so open and interesting and really sharing your drinking stories with us. And more than that, sharing a story of starting with a dream and taking that leap of faith and making something bigger and better than all of us. So this is Winnie Sun broadcasting from the TuneIn.com studio here in sunny Venice Beach. To learn more about me, you can find my profile on LinkedIn under Winnie Sun. And check out Sun Group Wealth Partners' website at sungroupwp.com. And follow us on Twitter at hashtag sungroupwp. Until next time, thank you. Thanks so much.